Welcome to the latest edition of the NPM Podcast. I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. This edition of the podcast is sponsored by global business advisory firm, FTI Consulting. Joining me today from that firm is Managing Director, Dr. Michael Bakunin, to discuss electric vehicles and the subsequent rise of the energy infrastructure to support it. Michael, welcome to the show today. Hi, John. Thanks for having me here. Great, great. So, like other segments of the clean energy economy, the U.S. trails behind its global peers, uh, in this case in EV sales, but it's slowly starting to climb as uh, sales more than doubled to 630,000 vehicles in 2021 against a global increase of 6.6 million. Uh, Meanwhile, um, 1Q22 sales also off to a healthy start, jumped 60% to 160,000 vehicles. Um, Elsewhere, structuring EV busing networks has also started to accelerate uh, as the likes of North American student busing leader for student uh, who has committed to electrifying its bus fleet, uh, recently acquired a metropolitan area bus owner, Total Transportation Corporation. Finally, at a policy level, um, it's certainly come into the forefront for all of us as um, the Biden administration committed $7.5 billion in funding under the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. And finally, um, I believe uh, quite recently, the USDOT and uh, the DOE uh, generally announced a series of standards to sort of govern this as these um, EV charging networks get built. So... With that as the backdrop, Michael, why don't you just start off, start off talking with us um, at a higher level in terms of U.S. adoption of electric vehicles? Where are we right, in it, right now, and where do we need to go to meet some of these uh, administrators goal, administration's goals? Yeah, absolutely, John. And maybe if uh, before I go really deep into that, uh, just a couple of words about my background. So uh, I used to work for a car maker in Nissan across three continents in in Europe, in Japan, in the United States, and more recently for Nuvi. So I'm pretty familiar with electric vehicles and charging technology. And I've been always following the the market and, uh, you know, checking the numbers and not always satisfied with the progress the U.S. uh, in general was making in this space. But with the new administration, you rightly said it's becoming real. So it's more focus, it's more funding uh, and it's more. Uh, in terms of regulation or uh, you know requirements uh, to the charging infrastructure and, and and that's that's very important. So you rightly said uh, you know the the market is growing like crazy and to be honest, if you want to buy a new electric vehicle right now, uh, it, you will need to wait. And if it, you're, we are talking about the elephant in the room, it's Tesla, uh, which probably holds like I don't know like seventy percent of the market in sales today. Uh, you will need to wait around 12 months to get your Tesla delivered. So that basically tells us uh, two things. So the first one is the demand is strong, but secondly, now we have supply chain issues, right? So it's not only because people want cars, it's just, uh, you know, if you want to source all the right components, uh, um, so that that's, that's a big challenge. But uh, the market looks very healthy in terms of, uh, uh, growth rates and uh, hopefully in 2022 uh, for the first time in in the US history we'll be selling uh, 1 million plus electric vehicles so which means uh, you know maybe it's just a, an emotional point but they, we are talking millions finally 
but not all states are the same and not states not not all states are equal if you look at the breakdown uh, obviously there are some leading states and there's some states that are trying to catch up and uh, obviously uh, i'm based in california and i'm an ev owner and i perfectly understand you know in california if you're buying a new car it's like a smoking a cigarette so it's like if it's a gasoline car people will be looking at you it's like what seriously uh but it, it took a, a lot of hard work and a lot of dedication from california and you in california residents to get at that point um so uh, i'm looking at the numbers i think uh in uh, see like march 2020 california has 18 uh, percent of ev uh, sales, uh, like in total sales of, uh, of, uh, you know, vehicles, right? So that's, that's a lot. And on average, we only have like seven, eight percent. And hopefully uh, the entire country will be at that level pretty soon. Um, and I see other states like District of Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Colorado, Nevada, they're all catching up, but still a lot of work to be done in, in, in other states. And where the market is going is pretty clear. So, uh, you know, a few years ago, all EV forecasts coming uh, from, let's say, Bloomberg were like, oh, that's another dream. That's another strategy. That's another, you know, vision. Uh, so now people are <laughs> more realistic about that. So that's actually happening, which practically means in by 2030, hopefully 45, maybe 50 percent of sales will be electric. And, uh, you know, that's that's a big number. That's a lot of electric vehicles on the roads. And if we look at the recent uh, Bloomberg forecast, they are saying we'll have roughly 38 uh, million electric vehicles on the road in the United States by 2030. That's a huge, huge growth. It's, uh, uh, you know, between now and then. And uh, uh, what we need to do is basically to prepare ourselves for this growth, right? So charging infrastructure, those are uh, the, the issues we need to look at. Well, let's talk about the infrastructure supporting this. Um, you know, again, there's been several forms and formats that have shown up, obviously, the you're installing chargers at homes. You know, when does that start to happen? Um, obviously, the gas stations, um, there's been some initiatives at uh, rest stops. Uh, and of course, the seems like the most public um, personification of this has been um, the, the microgrids being built around bus depots and, and uh, public busing depots as, as sort of part of broader plans to just electrify bus fleets, um, reducing carbon emissions. And um, there's lots of um, you know, big money uh, backers behind that, uh, private money behind that, aside from federal incentive. But um, where, where, uh, where can you say we're at at this point with regards, with regards to supporting infrastructure, and where do we need to go? Yeah, I mean, uh, obviously, we'll need to have, uh, uh, you know, we'll need to match the number of electric vehicles with the number of chargers, and I would say the number of connectors. And uh, because the the sales are mostly happening in the passenger vehicle segment, so obviously a lot of chargers will come as, you know, part of the EV sale package. You will have a, a charger like an EVSC in your trunk, which will be probably 95% of the market. And uh, that's perfectly fine. And for what we call level two charging at home, um, overnight charging, that's, uh, you know, a go-to solution. So it's it's an obvious choice. And I think that's uh, the most uh, common use case for EV owners today. Uh, but uh, when we talk about light duty, medium duty, heavy duty, uh, road trips, uh, at work charging, then uh, things start getting a little bit more complicated, right? So, and, and you rightly said, 
and uh, emphasized uh, the importance of electrifying bus depots. And that's probably one of the most advanced uh, segments today. So the, the bus segment is growing super fast and the penetration rates on, on, on average across the world are much higher than even passenger vehicles. And the reason for that um, you have, uh, actually everything starts from mobility needs. So, and with buses and in the United States, school buses is like the, the core mass transit segment actually, uh, we have what, like half a million of uh, electric school buses, in, uh, not electric, but school buses in the United States. And uh, they have predictable routes. Uh, you know exactly where you need to go every day. And, you know, that gives you much more confidence when you want to electrify, but also other reasons like uh, CO2 emissions, uh, clean air, our kids to need, uh, need to breathe, right? So all those things uh, play an important role. So the government rightly said, okay, let's help this segment electrify. Let's give more funding available. And uh, what's happening today, uh, you know, when you have, you know, one electric vehicle at home, probably it's not a big deal. You can still charge it. So you just use the time of use tariff. And so probably, uh, you know, in my case in California, after midnight, it's becoming really affordable. So you just put your, uh, you know, smart charger, uh, you program it and you make sure you charge at night at very low rates. And then you don't disturb the grid. You don't disturb, you know, your own like small <laughs> grid at home. Uh, you're perfectly fine. But uh, when you need to charge uh, uh, a battery of a different size, let's say a school bus, uh, it's 150 kilowatt hour plus, so maybe up to 200 plus kilowatt hours, and then that's much more power. But then uh, in many cases, you won't have just one electric bus. So it's a, it's kind of a snowball. You, you get, you, you, you're trying to electrify, you add more battery packs and you need more charging. And this is where things start getting really complicated because you are talking about uh, power availability and all other constraints and timelines and charging infrastructure and actually power because at home I can charge between seven and 11 kilowatts. And, you know, if you want to charge a school bus, you probably end up uh, with a 19 kilowatt charger or you will choose a DC charger, which means you go, you know, 25, 50, 75, 100 kilowatts, depending on your uh, mobility needs. And this is where I think we're going to actually hit the what I call the glass ceiling, because at some point of time, we'll start realizing that we don't have that level of power readily available for all depots you need to electrify right now. And this is where I think uh, we need more uh, smart solutions, we need more thinking, we need more storage, we need more solar. So all of that together start playing you know, uh, an important role. Um, so why don't we stay focused on um, the, the support? Um, you know, in talking to people, they, they tell me that there's a lot of balls still hanging in the air regarding, you know, what's going to be the proper support system in the sense of, you know, you have the chargers and then you have the energy storage at the back sort of discharging energy and you know, they're, they're supporting, in theory, a lot of things. They're supporting, it could be a microgrid, they're supporting, you know, the charging network that's part of it. Um, can you maybe walk us through what some of your observations have been around this and how energy storage is interacting with charging and whether, you know, are they, are they basically working in sync with each other or are they possibly, you know, 
working separately? Like, what, what's your view on some of this stuff? Yeah, absolutely, and it's a uh, um, it, it's a it's a very important question. And I've I've had the chance to work on on a number of depots. And before you start investing, and we know like solar is expensive, stationary storage is expensive, everything is expensive. So you do a lot of simulations upfront. So you're trying to actually predict uh, uh, the energy consumption per your uh, depot, right? So, and ideally it cannot be isolated from your main facility consumption, let's say school district consumption, let, let, right? Let, let, let's stop for one second on that point, because you make a very good point, because if you're dealing with, let's say a bus depot around student busing, you, you have a sense about how much electricity is consumed. There is a way to forecast that, right? Or is there a lot of variables that go into it? Well, uh, the, 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 my starting point, and it's probably not very obvious for like uh, people just doing it for the first time, but it's actually mobility needs. And, okay. the, and uh, you know, when you talk to utility guys, when you talk to, you know, charge point operators, when you talk to other excited people, they will spend a lot of time uh, around kilowatts and solar. Okay. And, but the, the starting point is mobility needs. So you mm -hmm. need to perfectly understand when and how your uh, vehicle will be routed and dispatched. And, and uh, based on that, uh, you can actually start um, building your infrastructure, at least simulating your infrastructure, trying to make sure you can cover those mobility needs and probably put an additional buffer in case you have some extraordinary situation because our kids need to go to school no matter what. Right, really right, ma right. You want yeah. to generate less um you know solar power you know that's your problem right so the kids still need to go to school yeah. uh, and then uh, you want to generate more like v2g revenue probably we're going to talk about that a little bit later but uh, <laughs> no one cares about that i mean the first the first objective of any school district uh, is just to make sure school uh, kids are, uh, you know, uh, behind their desks and, and listening to teachers. And this is where, the, you know, the confusion. And, and then uh, you do all those sim simulations and you make sure the sizing is right. So what kind of technology you need to support all of that and what kind of compromises you need to make. But the first objective, 100% mobility needs, uh, they need to be met. That's simple. Mm -hmm. And are you finding that the electrified buses are able to sort of operate on one charge daily, or do you think it's more like multiple at this point? It depends. Uh, mm -hmm. It depends. It's uh, school by school. It's uh, use case by use case, uh, region by region. Uh, also, uh, you know, the temperature matters, right? So the uh, if it's cold or hot and in, in, if it's a just a regular trip or a field trip, so those things matter. But in, in many cases, I would say uh, you can get away with one, um, you know, overnight charge. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it, it actually I also saw cases where, you know, a bus needs to go back and, you know, uh, recharge a little bit during lunchtime. So that's, sure. that also happens. So it's there is no answer that can be just you know, for every school district. And I have to gather when you talk about municipal busing versus student busing too, that, you know, yeah. makes possibly the route a lot larger. Oh, yes, you know, oh, for sure. Absolutely, yeah. you're right. Um, so just getting back to intermittency, which is what I seemingly talk about, I think, every hour, <laughs> every day at this point. Um, I mean, again, that's sort of the rhetoric, right? That there's, um, 
you know, EV charging infrastructure out there and there's energy storage that's out there. And at both points, they can be looked at as, hey, they might have excess energy that they, they're able to release to the grid and serve as like another resource, you know, in, in, in certain cases. Um, and is that what you're, you guys are hearing from um, manufacturers of, of chargers, pluggers? Oh yeah, it's it's a very complex topic, and and uh, theoretically you're absolutely right. So this uh, story with uh, you know bidirectional charging, so when you can mm -hmm. charge and discharge your electric vehicle battery, has been there in place uh, since what 2012 probably. So yeah. the first protocol which was supporting bidirectional chargers uh, was actually Chademo, the Japanese one, and I at that time I worked for Nissan and was really happy to see. Uh, uh, you know, there's that implementation. But 10 years after, uh, I think it's still in very early stages. Uh, unfortunately, the volumes are not there and it's mm -hmm. it's a very sophisticated uh, system because for the first time, actually car makers had to work with utilities uh, and not just build their businesses as a standalone kind sure. of opportunity, right? And, and uh, there are three elements uh, uh, to play with. So the vehicle itself, the compatibility, uh, and uh, the second one is charging uh, uh, equipment. And the third one is actually your interconnections with the grid. So, and all the ruling, all the uh, regulation, all the uh, agreements uh, need to be in place to enable all of that. And I can tell you as of today, um, you know, we have challenges at each step. Uh, so sure. you don't have a lot of bi-directional uh, vehicles, uh, even though uh, school, all, all school bus makers are declaring that they have, uh, you know, full V2G support, um, but mm -hmm. interoperability is still a big issue. We don't have a lot of options when it comes to charging infrastructure. I mean, hardware, um, you know, in the US, the main uh, DC standard is CCS, and we don't mm -hmm. have many options in this space. Uh, so that's a limiting factor. And even if you have everything in place, like you have a, a compatible bus, uh, you have a, a charger, then you need to have uh, uh, basically your local utility working closely with you and enabling this business model. So all of that are hurdles um, and uh, they are reasonable. I mean, it just takes time to work with them. But Strategically, I think there is no doubt. Everyone is convinced that vehicle to grid bidirectional charging is the future. Mm -hmm. And that's why, I mean, we are talking about buses today, but for me, uh, uh, Ford F-150 Lightning should be the next big step in this space, mm -hmm. right? So the technology they are promoting today, uh, you know, they developed a charger with Siemens, uh, mm -hmm. which can support bidirectional charging. And it's very, it's a very unusual charger. It's an AC charger with a CCSDC connector to enable all the communication with the vehicle. And hopefully the system they are going to put in place together, firstly for like vehicle to home implementations, but maybe one day for vehicle to grid implementations too, will actually unlock the entire market so they can be uh, a trendsetter in the future. But, uh, and this is where the real volume can come, you know, it's like F-150 is, is one of the best-selling vehicles in the United States, and it's, it's a legend, not just a vehicle. And finally, it comes as an, an electrified uh, 
version with a bi-directional capability. I'm really hoping this will change the market and then other segments will try to accelerate and catch up. So that that's my personal take on it. Uh, interesting answer. So um, you used to work at Nuve, you were telling me, and I kind of wanted to hear more, a little bit more about the um, businesses like that, the Energies of Service Platform, or EAAS as the acronym goes. Um, you know, we've seen plenty of announcements over the years um, before COVID, during, after, about these uh, platforms that were there to sort of go to to com uh, commercial or student busing companies uh, with kind of the aim of the first student transaction or mimicking it, but instead of owning the infrastructure, you know, basically supporting it and, you know, giving um, uh, the buses what they're looking for. Again, the busing to electrification to uh, microgrid support um, and, and all those things. Um, can you um, talk at all about those efforts and if, if it's found success yet? Um, again, I think going back to first student, it's important to note before we go forward with this is that it's still a fragmented busing market in the U.S. I believe um, first student at the time it was acquired is maybe 14 or 15 percent of the North American market. Um, you know, plenty of room to consolidate, plenty of room to do uh, platforms. But um, in any case, that's the backdrop. What have um, you observed about some of these efforts? Good question. So to begin with, uh, electric buses are very, very expensive. And it's, uh, again, another elephant in the room. Um, so if you want to buy a normal like diesel school bus, you're going to pay maybe 100K plus minus. Mm -hmm. If it's an electric, it's uh, 300,000 plus. So Got it's it. a huge kind of sticker shock and it's very expensive. And, uh, uh, you know, w when the, for the first time school districts uh, or companies like first students start looking into that, it's like, oh, my God, this will never work. But uh, a big change actually happened recently because the gasoline prices went up uh, because of the, you know, the uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine. So many things have changed. Uh, but uh, because of that, the total cost of ownership, which is a more a important metric for uh, fleet owners and fleet operators, uh, you know, when you look at that, school buses uh, finally are on par uh, with diesel buses. Wow. So, which is, Amazing. you know, never happened before. It was always like, yeah, you know, you need to pay a little bit more, but then you have this and that advantage. And, you know, it's really good for the society, for kids, for everyone. It's nice and shiny. But today there is a very clear economical reason to buy a, an electric school bus versus buying a diesel bus. And this is, uh, for me, is a, you know, is a tipping point. So and uh, what I, I'm, I want to see is this really changing and, you know, which means like the ele electric bus is becoming more economically, uh, economically viable than diesel buses uh, every single day. So it's like basically m m decreasing the upfront cost of the vehicle and also, uh, you know, stable electricity prices and also being smart about how you electrify uh, your depots. So that's an important factor to consider. And in addition to that, uh, I would say 
uh, also the implementation methods because uh, it depends how you charge. When I'm saying total cost of ownership is over 10 years and you need to have a proper system in place to, to be able to avoid peak hours, to be, uh, to be able to avoid uh, high tariffs. And that's very easy to get into this trap when you buy chargers that are not smart um, you know, you just plug the vehicle, you leave the depot, and then you get, uh, you know, a spike in your uh, electricity cost. Uh, this is exactly what you want to avoid. And uh, so for me, uh, you know, the solution is to use uh, smart charging systems, which means smart charging platforms where you can connect to, um, to a vehicle knowing the state of charge of the battery, but also knowing how much power you have available at the depot level. Uh, being able to match and start and stop and schedule charging. So that actually saves a lot of money. That's a very kind of straightforward, no-brainer business case. And another kind of factor is your charging infrastructure, right? So your cho the choices you make. And uh, here uh, it's always a trade-off between AC, DC, plus solar, plus stationary, plus V2G. So those are the elements you're playing with. And in that case, what happens, um, you know, companies are trying to upsell a little bit. And in many cases, they will say you, you definitely need a bi-directional DC charger or just a DC charger. Those are expensive to buy, install, maintain. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that's the main challenge, uh, you know, fleet operators have. Like, what is my choice? Do I go with AC low cost uh, solution? Can I cover 80, 90% of my use cases uh, by by going AC and then probably adding DC for some one-offs and then you, you just save the day. Uh, so those are decisions, uh, you know, fleet makers need to make uh, to optimize. And then eventually everything counts, like um, uh, what's your upfront investment? How much you pay for electricity? What's uh, all of that goes into total cost of ownership or cost per mile. And eventually, after like five, 10 years, uh, hopefully this becomes more affordable. So today, uh, school buses are heavily subsidized. Charging infrastructure is heavily subsidized. But the miracle happens when uh, on a standalone basis, without any subsidies from the government, utilities or you name, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the your total cost of ownership is attractive. So this is where we need to be. We're not there yet, but we have very good, you know, signals and signs in the market that we are going into this direction. And with, uh, you know, with the gasoline prices we have today, uh, hopefully it starts uh, making a lot of sense. Great. Well, to finish it off on the policy issue, again, the standards implemented recently by the um, Federal Highway Administration, the DOT, um, and I guess the DOE was in there. Uh, minimum standards and requirements uh, project funded under the National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure and NEVI Formula Program. Uh, these standards were around minimum charging ports, uh, kilowatt floors on the chargers, and specifications around availability and adoption, amongst other measures. Uh, I think this was just announced a couple of weeks ago. Um, did you have any just quick observations about that, if it sort of got us going in the right direction to sort of standardize how these charging networks are set up? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I saw today in the news that Europe is trying to adopt very similar oh. requirements. Uh, so it's uh, in the US, it's every 50 miles, uh, if I remember well, along major highways, we need to have a charging station. In Europe, it's uh, 60 kilometers, so which is pretty close. And then, then um, when it comes to power, so the requirement is to have uh, 150 kilowatt fast charging and absolutely the same requirement uh, in Europe. So that's actually very, uh, very interesting. It looks like it's a very well thought through idea, which is going, getting really close to implementation. Um, I would say, uh, let's talk about a little bit about power. And on average, I'm a Tesla owner and my battery pack is roughly 78 kilowatt hours. So which practically means uh, if you have a 150 kilowatt charger, um, you, you can probably fully charge your battery pack in less than 30 minutes. And you never come to a charging station empty, which is a very uh, convenient uh, way of thinking about that uh, for me. Uh, you know, and I did a number of road trips with my family. So you're probably going to have three, four hours of driving and then you need to have a, a, a break. And especially if you have kids. And so it's like, a, you know, restaurant break, coffee, uh, just stretching your <laughs> legs and arms. So that's that's 30 minutes easily. Yeah. And then the question is, what is the location of your charging station? It cannot be in the middle of nowhere. So you need to have uh, really good access to amenities and facilities, but charging power is there. And then um, uh, the, the trick is uh, you will never charge at that uh, power all the time. So when it says 150 kilowatts, so if you just do the basic math and multiply or divide uh, by your battery capacity, that gives you like 30 minutes full charge. But it never happens because the, the battery management uh, system on the vehicle will actually limit your uh, your charging power at a certain point of time to actually extend the durability and longevity of your battery pack. But in general, I think it's a good number, even though we know that Tesla can charge at um, 250. It only happens just for a few minutes. You, you plug your vehicle, you're almost empty, you came preconditioned, so your battery is cold, you're ready to accept this enormous power. It goes into your battery, but it only lasts for a few minutes and then it declines. I, actually, I would say, uh, the uh, most of the time I see my battery charging at 120, 130 uh, at Tesla superchargers. And this 250 is more like, for me, a marketing message to the market that we can actually do that. And some other car makers like Porsche Taycan, you can charge at uh, 350. So that's impressive. But do you really need to charge 350 all the time? The answer is no. Uh, so that's, uh, for me, the power, uh, the power choice is pretty good. Uh, and it's a trade-off between, uh, you know, hardware you need to play, put in place, but also the, the grid capacity you need to have or the interconnection you need to have the, with the grid in, in specific locations. So in some, in some cases, you might have that power. In some cases, you won't, and which means 150 is probably a good compromise. Uh, I also like the fact that they are talking about uh, how you access those charging stations. As of today, you come to see an EVGO's charging station charge point, you need to be a member of their like network. You need to have a, an RFID card, you need to have an app. Um, but what the requirement is saying, uh, you, it needs to be more like a gas station. So if you have a credit card, uh, you're fine to go and just unlock um, uh, and enable charging. That's a good. Uh, that's a, that's a good approach. What I'm probably missing today is the uptime requirement. And uh, one of the success stories we're seeing today in the market, uh, it's Tesla. I mean, the number of chargers, but also the uptime. They 
they're basically saying, and I have this number in front of me, um, it's 99.96%. The way they calculate is a little bit, you know, unique, uh, but uh, it's still a, a good number. And I've never had a problem uh, with a, you know, with a Tesla charger in, in my life. I mean, it's like if one plug is not working, you can see that, you know, some available plugs anyway, and you can just change the um you know the charging station but in this particular spot and uh, location you will be able to charge so uh, uptime requirement is very uh, important and this is where i struggled um, when i owned um, other electric vehicles you, you come to charge and you are not able to find a, a working dc charger so this is where i think uh, probably they need to tighten it uh, a little bit up but except uh, that i think it's a very good solid initiative and uh, hoping uh, with these requirements, we can enable um, road trips for non-Tesla owners. And, and maybe another um, element is actually heavy duty, medium duty, right? So this is where, uh, you know, they don't, they didn't specify requirements in terms of like, uh, you know, how can you really charge a class A truck in those locations? It's, it's, it's a dedicated spot. You need to uh, do some different work to be able to do all the ingress, egress, and then, you know, it, it's gonna be difficult, but that's probably another requirement and hopefully we'll get there at some point of time. Good stuff. All right, Michael, well, look, that's all the time we have today. So thank you for joining the program uh, and uh, please listen in next time, work out. Excellent, thank you, John.